0: Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on the show Tyler Maxwell, the City Council Representative from District 4. Recently, Tyler proposed a bill to give free bus fares to Fresno residents. And it passed, which is a huge deal. We don't actually discuss that, though, in the conversation because this was recorded right before uh, that was voted on by the City Council. But I just wanted to bring it up to say a big congratulations to him. Let's go meet Tyler and Baker will take us there. Show
1: some respect to the best middle city left in the US. Fresno's best! Fresno's
0: best! So, Tyler, where do you like to eat in Fresno?
1: Uh, Well, I try to keep it local in the district. Uh, Fortunately, district four, you know, my unbiased opinion, we have the best food in the city. Uh, Just in a few blocks of where I live, we have tacos, marquitos, probably some of my favorite Mexican food. Um, We have Saibaidi, some of my favorite Asian food in the city. And um, if you're looking for good American food, right? We have Bulldog Grill. I'm a vegetarian, so not a lot of options that I could have there, uh, but I'm told they're pretty good.
0: So what does a vegetarian taco look like for you?
1: I've yet to find a, well, you know what? That's not true. Um, there was a place in tower district called Boca. I don't know if you ever went there. Um, it's sad that place went out of business, right? Yeah, they did. And it, it was sad because they were um, a local little business, but they also made really good vegetarian Mexican food. Um, uh, they made uh, quesadillas, tacos, burritos, and that was kind of my go-to place on the campaign. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, they're not around anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I, I love me a good vegetarian target. I think that really the only direction you can go is uh potatoes on that. I mean, I've had other things that are kind of like somewhat fajita like, but it's yeah. just there's something you need something meat-y. meaty in some way. Are you are you big on the uh the meat substitutes? Like uh for you know, recently I've been into the beyond burger and beyond meat stuff, which is which is good, but what what are you into?
1: Yeah, I mean you know, as veg- are you a vegetarian?
0: Uh, you know, I lived in San Francisco for a while and was was a <laughs> right. was a was a devout vegan. Um, but then I married a carnivore and have kind right. of modulated. But uh, I do the VB six, which is generally works for the me vegan before six, and then I have some usually have some kind of protein meat related around dinner time. Not every night, but pretty regularly. Right.
1: So, so you know, you know, as vegetarians, we can't be picky, right? So right. I'll eat whatever I can get with it. that's beyond impossible Morningstar, star, garden. Um, whatevers available, i'll I'll eat it. I'm not too picky when it comes to that.
0: yeah, you know, I think the the uh, underrated uh, benef- benefit benef- benefactors benef- people benefiting from uh, vegetarian meat are families because I remember when I came home from college, and for Thanksgiving, and I brought a tofurkey with me. It was just like there was like violence at the dinner table. <laughs> right, you know, it's chaos. Just because it's just like your family's like, how dare you bring this into our house? <laughs>
1: People get like, oddly offended by a vegetarian. They do because it feels idea. like, and I,
0: I understand because some vegetarians are just so forward in their right. like superiority complex that it's they their just whole identity. Right. And I, and, and I think as we get older, we realize that, you know, there are other ways that we are unethical that help to balance out our ethical positions in one area. Um, but if the meat is as good, then the game's over, right? Because then, because then it, it just doesn't matter. And I, I'm a big fan of, you know, what Memphis meats is doing and all those different groups trying to recreate it. Cause I would love to live in a world where, you know, Lab meat is as good as regular meat.
1: I think we're getting pretty close. I mean, you go to Carl's Jr. and you get one of the uh, Beyond Burgers. I mean, with all the barbecue sauce they put on it, right? But it's still really hard to tell. It's not the real deal. So
0: I, you know, I grew up as a a son of a a minister, and I know you know ministers and politicians are uh, share some share some uh, aspects about how they have to, you know, kind of work with their communities. And one of those is, is eating meals with people. And as a politician, you know, you're probably sitting down at a lot of tables, you know, and there's, you know, certain, certain kinds of ethnic food are not as friendly, uh, to uh, vegetarians as others. How have you navigated that?
1: Well, since I, well, I haven't run into that scenario too often just yet because the week after I was elected with shelter in place, so I've been home on my couch for the last year. So okay. I'm sure once things go back to normal, once things back open back up, I will be in that situation where I'm eating with a lot more people. Um, but but I've kind of find like in all cultures, uh, even the ones that tend to be a little bit meat heavy, have a lot of really good vegetarian options, whether, you know, that's Asian or Mexican or, you know, even Indian food got some of the best vegetarian oh, yes. foods out there. So I uh, haven't run into that just yet, but. I think it'd be fine. People do a pretty good job of incorporating that vegetarian diet somewhere into their meals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're a young guy in politics, um, and you know, youth in politics and youth in government is something probably AOC-related. Just that's something that people see as an inherent virtue uh, these days. You know, AOC disrupting a lot of the kind of like uh, what's the ex- uh, experience. Norms ladders or whatever, yeah. like, you know, doing your time before you can be in charge um, and using social media to do that. Um, I think there are some, there's, there's virtues to it. And there's also weaknesses to it as well, if you're young. So what do you see as the most underrated strength of young people in government? And I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not saying you're a young person, but young relative to the average age of the senators that are serving in Congress or, or people in the House of Representatives. So What is the underrated strength of youth in government? And then what's the most overrated
1: aspect of youth in government? Um, You know, speaking for myself and, you know, some of my colleagues, you know, whether it's in Fresno or some other cities here in the Central Valley who are, you know, similarly young, we're in our, you know, early, mid, late 20s. We're very different in a lot of ways, you know? White, Latino, went to different schools, Parents came from different backgrounds, but I think one of the things that really kind of has bound us all together is you know, we've we've had really hard lives growing up, right? I mean, we, we've had uh, different upbringings to be sure, but I think we've kind of shared in, you know, the fact that we've, you know, f- grew up in impacted communities or we've grew up impoverished. Um, you know, I grew up on welfare and food stamps, Jordan. It w- wasn't an easy life growing up, and I think that's a shared. Uh, reality unfortunately upon amongst a lot of young people and I think that's what spurred a lot of us to go into politics. Um, I could tell you for a lot of people that have served in this building before have been landowners or attorneys, uh, developers, you know, very affluent, very different backgrounds and I think kind of the common thread with this generation going into politics and what spurred them to go into politics is we're kind of coming from the shared background where we grew up in the worst economy of our lifetimes and one of the longest wars of our lifetimes. We grew up in that rough environment. It's kind of shaped uh, our morals. It's shaped our thoughts and our values. And I think kind of pushed us into the direction that we're, we're, we're headed in. So
0: what do you think's overrated though, about (laughs) young people in government? Is it social media, like the power of social media? I mean, I think, AOC has used social media to really build a coalition around ideas. Do you think that's overrated or underrated?
1: Uh, I think social media is a powerful tool for anyone that knows how to utilize it well. I mean, we've seen it done by both AOC and Donald Trump to very different, uh, very different results, right? Uh, it's just a matter of how you use it, but I, I think we do, as you know, the younger generation, probably have a better grasp with uh, reaching out to a lot of young folks. Um, and I think it's a catch-22. We're able to engage a lot better with young folks, uh, but we're still having a hard time trying to get them out to the polls and vote. So they're more engaged in one sense, but it's they're still not really turning out um, reliably when it comes to election day, right? And so there's a catch-22 there um, and it's frustrating. And I think it's something we need to continue working on now that we have young people in office. I think we'll start to see you know more young people coming out to vote Um, it's gonna take time it's frustrating Um, but hopefully it happens yeah so
0: uh, one of one of the jobs that you got your start with was in probation Um, and you know I've thought a lot about this um, and my partner works in criminal justice system and you know there are more than 3 million people uh, kind of on government surveillance which is what I refer to as probation Um, and Part of me thinks we, it needs to be increased because it feels like there's too many people in prison um, and that there are some uh, offenses that land people in prison that might be better served just being uh, sure. you know, involved monitoring by probation. Um, but having worked in probation, what, where, where do you think that system can be improved and um, what, what aspects of probation do you think already work well?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't ever a probation officer. I was a victim advocate. So, you know, I wasn't sworn. I didn't carry a firearm or handcuffs. I uh, worked mostly with victims of domestic violence that were trying to get resources after an abusive relationship. Uh, so that was kind of the lens I saw things through. But I mean, just speaking from a general standpoint, we have a mass incarceration problem, not just in our state, but our country and I I think we're starting to see some positive shifts in the right direction right President Biden signed an executive order last week that said we're not going to continue to fund private prisons which have an incentive to see more people go to jail regardless of whether the punishment fits the crime or not Um, and I think here on a local level we made some really good progress yesterday Jordan and we need to continue uh, in similar footsteps but we created a social equity program So these are people who had been incarcerated or charged for marijuana possession or use in the past or people that come from impacted communities, whether that's concentrated poverty, communities of color. And this fund will essentially help people from that background uh, hire staff, uh, purchase a building, get a license to operate a cannabis retail store here in the city of Fresno, which to me is so important. as we see people released from prison um, from these arcane laws related to marijuana, they're thrown into the same system um, that initially got them put into prison. What we're seeing is a lot of affluent, white, out of towners coming into Fresno and purchasing all these licenses for these marijuana dispensaries. And so um, I think we need to make sure that we're doing a better job here locally of making sure that we have these equitable programs that help uplift these same people who have been traditionally punished uh, for the things that out-of-towners are now profiting from.
0: That's unfortunate. I mean, I know it's such a complicated issue with you know, especially especially people that are in prison for substance abuse, um, and you know how how to how to help them. I mean, definitely. <laughs> What I've learned, if anything, is that, uh, you know, it's called CDCR, but the R is sometimes. Um, And so do you think probation would be equipped to help uh, better help people with uh, substance convictions?
1: I think altogether, we need to do a better job of rehabilitative justice. Um, And I think all branches of, you know, armed service, whether it's probation, police, parole, need to be doing a better job of that. And I get that it's hard when you don't have enough officers to even be reactive. How are you supposed to be proactive? Um, so I think that's why we need to get, um, creative. Um, I think we need to start looking into more innovative ways of doing outreach and being proactive and trying to intervene with people and not necessarily criminal, criminalizing them, but understanding these are people. With flaws to be sure, but what do we do to intervene and rehabilitate these people instead of just punishing them?
0: Yeah. There definitely needs to be more services. And I was recently talking with the director of NAMI, the, the National yeah. Organization on Mental Health, or mental illness, I should say. Um and we're talking to
1: Chris Roop or
0: Chris Roop, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And we were just talking about there's like there's not a lot of middle ground uh between m- you know, these kind of mental hospitals, these state hospitals. Um, and then you have these, you know, posh rehab centers, but there's not, a, or not rehab. I'm using the wrong words. Uh, Cause I've got substance abuse on the brain because we were just talking All about right. that, but we're you know, just kind of these, this dichotomy between, you know, you're either, you know, in, in the maximum security facility, or there's this minimum, you can find your way out very easily. I think it's true with substance abuse as well. And, uh, you know, mental illness and substance abuse have that kind of in common that there's not a lot of middle ground for these people that maybe shouldn't be in prison, but you know, the rehab kind of option doesn't really work. So,
1: yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement. That's, that's for sure.
0: So, um, this is kind of a fun one. How, how boring is crime scene investigation, really? I mean, I know that um, the, TV show, the TV shows have made it look exciting, but I know, because I'm also an employee of the government, that things are always more boring when you're actually there. Okay,
1: so here's the thing. I've never seen an episode of CSI in my life.
0: What? Really? <laughs> yeah, I've never There's so this- many shows, though. There's like 500 different CSIs.
1: I know, I know. And that was one of the questions they asked me during my interview because I think they wanted to weed out people who have this romanticized version of what CSI was. I didn't have that. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I mean, I've heard about, you know, what a CSI is and man, that sounds cool, but I don't think I had all these preconceived notions because yeah, I've never watched Law and Order, I've never seen CSI, I've never seen NCIS. I just not a big fan of those shows as ironic as that is to say, because I really enjoyed the work.
0: Yeah. So, so it's, is it not boring?
1: (laughs) It has its ups and downs, right? Um, I was on the night shift. So I was working from 6 30 PM to 4 AM and some nights you're literally looking through a microscope for 10 hours at fingerprints, trying to match different fingerprints. And when 2 a.m. comes around and you're nodding off and you remember you got several more hours to go, it's it's exhausting and yeah, it's not the most glamorous, but there could be a night where you have a double homicide and the next morning you're going up in a helicopter to take aerial photographs of the crime scene. And then the afternoon uh, later, you're going to the uh, autopsy to help conduct uh, a pathology exam on the decedent. So. Uh, It has its exciting parts and it has its mundane parts as well.
0: I have a lot of morbid questions that I'm not going to ask, but uh, (laughs) so I I guess my 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 question is: uh, I, as someone that's watched a fair amount of CSI, the kind of the the premise that people walk away with from that show is that um, you can find some fiber or something and then it just cracks the case and it's game over. And I, I know that's probably not true and it's much more complicated, but do you think that kind of uh, glamorization of the scientific method did more to help or hurt actual, you know, the actual CS, real CSI work in terms of I like think, taking it to trial and people's expectations of what uh, crime scene investigators can do?
1: I think from what I heard is, A lot of criminals watch those shows and I gave them ideas on what they could do to cover up their steps. But what was fascinating to me is, you know, I expected there'd be a lot of science involved, but there's even more science than I could have possibly imagined that goes into it. And there are some instances, right, where you pull a single fingerprint from a crime scene, and that's enough for a warrant to be issued for somebody's arrest, Um, whether they're going to get convicted Um, because of that fingerprints, a different story, right. But there are, you know, trace pieces of evidence, you know, fingerprints included that, you know, is enough to get somebody arrested. And so they put us on a one year probationary period where you just looked at nothing but fingerprints. And if you got one match wrong, you're, you're out, you're out of the job. Really, and so, and again, this is at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning, right? And you're you're trying to stay awake, and but that's how much thought and care and science goes into the process, and it's not always perfect; it's still flawed. But um, there's a lot of science involved.
0: Well, and I think the great thing about science uh, and a, a about CSI work is that can it, it can be used to exonerate people too, which we've seen right. in all these innocent project. I mean, those those Netflix innocent project documentaries were just so powerful in that like th- this science has the power to really do harm. If like the expert that's holding forth in a courtroom is, you know, has some pretty glaring biases. Um, but it right. also can like, in, in the hands of some, you know, big city lawyers on the East coast be used to get someone out of prison who's been in there for 30 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that more and more, often as we rely more and more on DNA evidence, right? We didn't necessarily have the ability to extract or analyze DNA, you know, prior to 20 years ago. And so we are seeing more and more exonerations, uh, which to me just tells us, you know, we do have a flawed criminal justice system where it is possible for an innocent person to go to jail, to go to prison.
0: Right. So let's talk about district four, uh, which sure. is, you know, the focus of the your- best district. Yeah. Um, So, can before we get started and talking about the issues of District Four, can you kind of give a general outline of what's included in District Four? Kind of because it's it's shaped a little funny, right? It's kind of got these two little humps on each side. So where
1: where is the? It's an oddly shaped district. So our northern boundary is Fresno State, right along Bullard Avenue, and we kind of run in between um, the 41 and the 168. Uh, not perfectly, but we kind of conform to that shape in between those two freeways and we end up snaking um, just south of the airport. So we also have the airport in our district. And then, you know, 20 years ago, our district ended right there at Fowler Avenue, but more and more development keeps popping up. And now we're going out uh, past Locan Avenue, which is like another two miles past uh, Clovis. And so we're rapidly expanding further and further.
0: So are most of the issues that you deal with related to the airport in Fresno State being the kind of the big two, you know, job related areas and, you know, the, kind of the central, you know, I mean, those are the big parts of your district, right? Yeah.
1: So those do generate, you know, issues, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, they are governed by separate entities to a degree. Fresno State is not a city asset, right? It's uh CSU system is part of the state of California. They have their own administration, they have their own um, police department. And you know, the airport, it is a city asset, but um, it's also regulated by the federal government to a large degree. Um, And so I think probably most of our issues Jordan are coming just from the fact that the district is starting to get left behind over the last couple of decades. What we saw happen in south and central Fresno over the last, you know, four or five decades is happening to district four in real time. As our city builds further and further north, further west, and further east, that comes at the expense of our inner core. And uh, my constituents are saying that happened in real time because there's less focus being put onto what we have already. And instead, that focus is being put on, you know, let's continue to build, build, build.
0: Yeah. Does that, I mean, to to make it tangible, does that just translate into, like, street maintenance? Does it translate into a number of, like, police bodies that you can have in a certain area? What does that
1: translate to? Yeah, all of the above. Um, When you're focused on subsidizing future development, well, that's going to come at the cost of um, funding your current development, or streets or some of the worst in the city our sidewalks are cracked, our gutters are pulling up, our trees are overgrown, our parks are overlooked and underfunded. And on top of that too, it's, you know, we're not hiring more police officers and more firefighters, but our city is getting bigger. And so the larger you build a city and the more residents you attract, you're still at the same level of service when it comes to our public safety. And so response times are just becoming that much longer.
0: Are there cities that have done sprawl? Well, I mean, in terms of like, you know, cause it's hard to stop developers. Right. And so like, how, how do, how do, do they just raise taxes? I mean, like what, what is doing sprawl? Well, just paying more for government services or what does it look like?
1: <laughs> um, I think sprawl and, doing it well or contradictory right Um, (laughs) yeah I think there's um, there's ways to do development that don't come at the cost of holding your city hostage Uh, mixed-use development and high-density development are things I think we could be doing a better job at along the Blackstone corridor in downtown Fresno Um, I think that's also what attracts a lot of young professionals, right? I mean, especially people my generation that can't afford a three bedroom, two bathroom home for half a million dollars in Fresno, California, right? It's not the Bay or L.A., this is Fresno. And so I think if we want to start attracting uh, different businesses and different types of people to live in Fresno, we should be looking at infill development and mixed use development, which is where essentially you have housing on top and businesses on the bottom. You lived in the Bay Area. Uh, you know what that's like. And me personally, I loved it. I liked where I could walk wherever I wanted to go. I didn't have to rely on driving my car throughout the city all day.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had a similar conversation with Craig Sharton about these issues and it's, it's so complicated because I think part of what people think when they move to Fresno is, Oh, I'm getting a house with a yard. Um, yep. and then when you try to sell them on like dense urban living, they, the response is typically, well, I'm moving to Fresno. <laughs> You know what I right. mean? And so yeah. it's it's almost like a, it's a mindset change that you have to, you have to work with people in in, in thinking right. about not only what did you want when you moved here, but what's best for the city that you're moving to. And this right. comes with all the issues, right? I mean, that's the same issue that we have with gentrification, right? It's like, you got to think about what's best for you in the neighborhood or not what's best for the neighborhood in the, the neighborhood you are moving into. And I, I, it's just such a hard thing. Cause I, I mean, developers—they just know how to build track homes. They—they they do, and that—and convincing them to—it's so what's
1: the most profitable for them. So why stop, right?
0: Yeah. So how how I mean, how do you begin to have that conversation with developers?
1: I mean, how what does that even look like? Well, I think that conversation already happened back in 2014 when they built the 2035 general plan, which basically said, "Hey, we're not going to do urban sprawl anymore. We're going to start focusing on infill development." and that conversation has been hashed out um, under the Engine administration. And, you know, they prevailed, they, they, they agreed that the general plan was going to focus on infill development, not urban sprawl. And I think that's admirable. So I think the conversation's already happened. It's a matter of, are we going to stick to that plan, that vision, or are we going to abandon it um, at the first sight of, you know, something shiny on the horizon?
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to ask a dumb question now, which is how, so I'm trying to figure out how to frame dumb questions are the hardest ones to frame, so how does a city council like what how does it work with a developer i mean you you kind of approve you have to approve plans to build within a city limits i mean what what what's the relationship or role that a city council plays with a developer just so it's, we it's
1: kind of what we're talking about it's not as great as you would think if there's a piece of land and it's already been annexed into the city, so it's in the city's um, borders, and it's zoned for single-use development, then by right, those developers have the ability to develop on that land. And yeah, they have to go through our planning department to make sure things are up to code and that they have their permits, but that's the administration. That's not city council. Where we get involved is, are we going to expand our borders are we going to allow for more plots of land to come into our umbrella for more development are we going to pull back on that and also when it comes to CUPs conditional use permits um, our city is zoned which basically means you know certain parts of our city you could have single uh, family residence or multi-family residence apartments or commercial or cannabis whatever Um, But sometimes developers try to build something that that area is not zoned for. And right now we're seeing something like that in the tower district, right, where they're trying to put um, the church up at the historic tower theater. It requires a conditional use permit from the city of Fresno in order to operate. And so we have discretion like that, Jordan, to where we can decide how big we want our scope to be. And if somebody's trying to develop something that that property is not zoned for, we have discretion there to say yes or no.
0: Yeah, well, you brought it up, so I'm gonna say it. <laughs> um, you know, And this might be moot by the time this comes out and there right. might have been a decision about the old adventure church. I just don't understand it from the perspective um, of the church. Like, why would you want to move into a neighborhood where people are fighting keep you out and why would you want to have your legacy be oh we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna take away this historical landmark out of a neighborhood that values it so much i just don't even understand and maybe i just need to talk to the pastor at the church or something but it, it just doesn't make sense to me yeah and
1: uh you know i can't i can't speak for the pastor um i can't speak for the over 600 people who have emailed me this last week asking me uh, to do something about this, that this is going to impact their community, this is going to impact their business, this is going to impact their culture. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've gotten over 600 emails from that community. And, you know, talking to, you know, my my Christian friends, they, they agree, you know, God, Jesus does not exist within a building. It does not exist within a physical place. Where you decide to build um, shouldn't, shouldn't be based upon that consideration i mean if you're a christian you believe god exists everywhere he exists inside of you you don't need that building to you know have that contact that communication with a higher being with jesus or god
0: yeah and there's so many places where they could i mean there's so many properties downtown in that area that they could buy that i'm sure would not have any issue um, and so I think it's just, uh, so yeah, I, I, there's so many other buildings and I, I, who, who's the council person that, uh, that represents that, uh, the tower district? Esmeralda Soria. Okay. And I'm, I'm sure she's embroiled in this and it's, <laughs> it's, got her right emails, I'm sure she got thousands.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I think it's taking its toll on her. She's very sensitive and wants to be supportive of the religious community, but, she also understands that's one of the most historic places in our city. One of the places that truly has a sense of culture, that's based upon that building, right? It's the Tower District. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I you know,
0: I, I worked in the Castro in San Francisco, which is kind of a, a a district that has a a similar kind of neighborhood that has a similar kind of history and uh, you know being a certain uh, symbol to the city. Right. Uh, and I just remember some of the yeah, zoning issues and battles that would take place there. And right. a very different place than Fresno. Um... Yes, this is advertiser content. But I have a simple question for you. Have you ever been concerned about someone breaking into your barn and stealing your ATVs? Have you ever had a sleepless night worried about whether your chainsaws were safe inside of your shed. In all seriousness, we all need insurance because we're irrational and we assume that bad things only happen to that neighbor with the particular political signs on his front lawn. Acts of God, so I'm told, are arbitrary and bipartisan. So that leads us to our first sponsor, Debuto and Defendus Insurance Brokers. Trusted for over 60 years, Debuto and Defendus Insurance Brokers specialize in business and ag insurance. With the changing landscape of COVID-19 and how it affects your business, they support their clients with timely information, safety training, and have a whole claims department to ensure things go smoothly. Interested in seeing if your business is covered? Contact Carl Thiessen at 559-648-2122. And now back to our show. So, let's uh, let's let's talk about uh, Southwest Airlines, which is something okay. we are all excited about. Um, yeah. Does this mean I'm going to have ten dollars flights to LA? <laughs>
1: it's going to mean you have twenty five dollars flights to Las Vegas. Ooh, right. That's, so, I mean, that's dangerous. Is this? I mean, so <laughs> okay. What
0: do you think this is? I mean, it's kind of like similar to talk about high speed rail, right? Is is this something that's going to bring? more commerce to fresno or is this more about people leaving fresno to go visit other places
1: I mean, it's a two-way road uh, you're gonna have a lot of people i think utilize it to you know enhance their quality of life they could go to las vegas or denver colorado one way now and obviously las vegas is a destination location you know denver maybe if you're trying to do some skiing could be uh mm-hmm. but it's also a great place to catch another flight to another part of the country or another part of the world. And that's a two way street. We're going to get more people coming into Fresno now, which I think is going to be huge for our economy.
0: Yeah. So, and when the airlines come, that does that, that means a lot more jobs. I mean, airline jobs, is, is the airport going to grow in terms of number of employees?
1: Uh, our actual airport, usually when an airline comes in, they bring in their own staff and their own employees that may translate to an increase in employees. Um, for the airport. But I know in order to accommodate uh, new airlines coming in, we are doing things like creating new jobs to build a 1000 car parking garage, we're building a new terminal at the airport. And so we're expanding the size of our airport dramatically, which has increased the number of local jobs and how much money is going into our local economy. But, you know, we're, we're eyeing things. Mm -hmm. Um, We're looking at getting a new soccer stadium downtown and, you know, hopefully going into a better status down the road when it comes to our baseball league. And if we have better flights to and from our city, we want to become a destination location too. We want people to come here for the entertainment, for the culture, for the arts, for the food, the drinks.
0: I, and I don't know if this is, is, is true, it will come to pass, but I just hope they put a cover on top of the soccer stadium, like for the love of God. I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, I have, I know lots of those uh, people in that world in the Fuego world and the, in in the soccer world. And they're always trying to get me to come to the games and it's 105. And I'm like, you know, I'd like soccer, but I don't know if I like it that much. And it, it, it feels like that would be, I mean, if there was temperature control, I just feel like it would be packed out because people would just beg to get into the air conditioning to watch anything. I would watch, right. I would watch, you know, uh, little league baseball in air conditioning in the middle of summer. I would do anything.
1: <laughs> right. In. And I'm not sure what that looks like yet. It's still pretty early in the conversations. I know what one of the issues that we had with our soccer team before was that they were playing over at the Grizzly stadium. And according to the soccer team's contract, Within so many years, they had a transition into an actual soccer field. They couldn't continue to play on a baseball field, right. uh, baseball diamond. And so I'm sure whatever comes next is going to be a lot more accommodating for soccer players and soccer fans. What those specifics look like, you know, your guess is as good as mine.
0: Yeah. I want to close by talking about books, which is where I spend a lot of time on this podcast. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, these, these books can be political related or they could just be books that you appreciate. Uh, the question I sent you was uh, formed. You're thinking about politics, but I don't really care. You know, I'm just curious what, uh, you know, what people are reading. And uh, so maybe if you would share some books that are important to you and then maybe what you're reading right
1: now. Yeah. I'm actually struggling to read three books at the same time right now. So we, talk all, to you about we, those we all three. do that. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> right. It's...
0: It's so hard because you you have a book in your hand and then you see a better book over there and you're like, well, I don't want to yeah. stop this one because I'm already <laughs> halfway through. It's a problem so, we all suffer with.
1: <laughs> so the three books I'm reading right now, Jordan. Uh, number one is A Promised Land by President Obama. Uh, I'm reading The Power Broker by uh, Robert Moses. And Robert Caro. Uh, Robert Carroll, yeah. About, about Robert, Robert Moses. Moses, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then also reading The Smart Growth Manual, which is just kind of a. Uh, not a narrative, but just, you know, interesting ideas on how to build a smarter city.
0: What are, what are you, so obviously the, you know, Robert Caro's book is one of those like seminal books for a lot of people and like thinking about what can go right or wrong in a city. Yeah. Are are there things that you're picking up from that book that are kind of like are changing how you see things or.
1: I think it's just kind of shed a light that developmental greed has been around for a very long time
0: yeah roads and freeways man like right yeah <laughs> I, I don't mean,
1: know. i i you know it was my first time learning that there used to be a low income community in central park that's what that used to be before they forcefully evacuated evacuated everyone and developed around it and built a park over it
0: yeah it's such a it's such a tricky thing you know development because you kind of have to be this total stubborn uh egomaniac to to do anything big and but right. at the same time like that makes you kind of impervious or unaware of the needs of others and so it's kind of this catch 22 to really do do big things uh in a city um because when you do anything big it's going to hurt somebody right and so it's like how do you how do you even accomplish things because if you just make it completely grassroots like it's hard to do anything really
1: big right Uh, well I I would make the counter argument that uh Jane Jacobs filled that vacuum right that was kind of a response to a lot of the things that she saw happening in New York from Robert Moses and you know she wasn't a, a city commissioner she wasn't in charge of planning and development but she did start a movement which changed the way you know generations of people thought about urban development and urban planning
0: what have you What have you learned from Obama's book, if anything, about your, you know, political life and administration and those kinds of things? So I think I've made the
1: least amount of progress into that book. Out of <laughs> yeah, these it's, three. it's a big um, one, too, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm still pretty early into it. He hasn't become president yet. Um, so um, just learning. I mean, and, you know, I saw it myself, too. I mean, very idealistic man. Uh, A lot of hopes and a lot of dreams. And, you know, he makes it to the presidency and he realizes that it doesn't matter if you have all these hopes and dreams. If the people you're working with don't have those hopes and dreams, uh, there's going to be compromise involved. And it's unfortunate. You know, we saw it happen with Obamacare. Uh, It got watered down tremendously before it got passed in 2012, I want to say. And that's just kind of the political reality, which... It's frustrating, especially from an outside perspective. You get somebody elected and want them to wave a wand and for everything to be fixed, and you know it's not that easy and it's not that simple. And I've seen that from his point of view in the presidency, and I see it here on the city council side too. Two very different spectrums.
0: It's such a it's such a like a a tricky thing to walk because you know, you kind of want them to just get rid of the filibuster and just do everything that you would ever want and hope <laughs> and dream. But then you have the reverse of what happens when you do that. And, and so it's, and, and a lot of times, all the things that you accomplish once you got rid of it, those things get undone. And so it's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, and people forget, you know, that, I mean, the narrative has been about Obamacare that it was just something that this huge only Obama idea that was forced on people as opposed to what it really was, which is like these constant, like compromises, pulling back and forth and things. And so I actually took
1: it from Mitt Romney's plan that he instituted as governor um, back in the day. Right.
0: So it's, and I'm sure you face this on city council too, in order to get things done, you have to work with people you disagree with yeah. um, and compromise is important. And I, as much as we'd all just love Biden to wave a magic wand and do everything for us, I think... For me, the dark road is, is just having these pendulums every four years where you ju- or every eight years or whatever it turns out to be, where right. you know, everyone gets what they want, but then there's a backlash and then we swing back sure.
1: the other way. Yeah, I, I think know. a good piece of advice that was given to me is uh, you could know, compromise your politics, just never compromise your values because that's what it comes down to when you're actually in the seat. You gotta make tough choices And sometimes it's not always your favorite choice, but as long as you're not compromising your values, uh, I think you could sleep well at night.
0: Well, we'll end on that note. There's plenty more things we could talk about what Jerry's doing with homeless people and all that stuff, but we won't go there today. Uh, We'll just just stop right here. I appreciate (laughs) you taking the time to talk to me.
1: No, thanks for having me on Jordan. I appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.